If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 668. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Purchase one or 20 of my classes there. You keep this podcast free of charge. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the Super Thanks button underneath the video. That way you can throw a few pennies my way. Keep the podcast free of charge that way with your support. Also, click on the Support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Another way to donate to the show. Click on the Shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media and send me those show requests. I do want to hear what you want to hear, right? So I may not respond back to you, but I do appreciate you sending me these, those, uh, those requests. I, I, I enjoy seeing what you like. All right, so let's talk about a piece that was uh, sent to me, and it's by uh, David French at The Atlantic. And David French is a neocon. I mean, he is a... A neocon's neocon. Uh, in fact, he is now the lead editor at the Dispatch. He worked for National Review for years, and he wrote this piece because there's a lot of discussion now about what to do about the government, right in Washington D.C. The government's broken, and it's broken, so it can't do anything. And we've just had these Supreme Court decisions, and of course, these decisions have thrown the left for a loop. Because they don't know what to do about it. Now, their policy arm of government has been become dysfunctional. They don't believe in judicial review anymore. They're, they're writing about this. I've talked about this for weeks, how the meltdown from the left has been just completely hilarious. Because, again, their policy arm, which is the Supreme Court, is now not working the way they think it should. And it's been going on like this. I mean, the Supreme Court has been issuing policy decisions for decades. And now, if they swing back or go the other way, and now it works against them. Well, they just want to tear it down. The left is relentless. They won't stop. But this piece from David French is interesting, and it's interesting because he blames Congress for all of this. Now, actually, this is going to sound maybe out there, but I agree with David French. The real issue in Washington, D.C. is not the president. It's not the Supreme Court, even though I've written a book on how nine presidents who screwed up America, and I've written a book that was originally going to be entitled How the Supreme Court Screwed Up America, and I focused on a few judges in the second half of that book, Congress really is to blame. I've said I should write a book about how Congress screwed up America several times. I don't know if I have the energy to do it right now. It'd be a big book. But Calhoun pointed this out back in the, back in the 1830s and 40s. He said it. He said, look, If you want to point to the real problem in the general government in America, it's not the presidency, it's not the court system, it's the Congress. And why is it the Congress? Because the Congress has the most power, 
Because the Congress is the institution that sets the agenda for the general government. And when the Congress refuses to do its job, when the Congress refuses to act constitutionally, when the Congress refuses to be the check on the entire system, and most importantly, the Senate being the check on the entire system, then we run into what we have today. We'll just give a couple of examples. The executive branch is not supposed to provide a budget. That's Congress's job. But you know what Congress has done? They've passed legislation to the effect where the president has to submit a budget, and then they work off that budget. So essentially what Congress has said is, <clears throat> look, we don't want to write the budget. We don't want to take part in that. Executive branch, you come up with what you need, and then we'll work off of that. <clears throat> and if it's too much, or if we don't think that's good enough, we'll make some tweaks to it. But essentially the president now writes the budget for the United States government. More importantly, special interest groups write the budget for the United States government and the president signs off on it. Or the bureaucracy writes the budget. And if you've ever worked for a government agency, this is how it works. So the department chair, a department head will come to you and say, hey, uh, do you need anything? What kind of money do you need? And so you'll say, well, I, I want to do this. I want to spend you know, $100 on this. All right, we'll make a request for it in the budget. And then that goes, of course, so the, the, the bureaucracy writes the budget and then the executive will approve or deny that. Like, okay, we really don't want to do that. We don't have this. But in case of the United States government, what are the restraints, right? So if you work for a, a, a company and you say, I want to spend $1,000 on a new printer, some, some awesome printer you want for your office, and the chair of the company, you know, CEO, gets the budget and says, well, heck, we don't have $1,000 for that. Well, you can't do it then. But if you work for a government, United States government, there's no limit. You can say, I want a million dollars for a stapler on my desk. It's gold, solid gold, platinum on the inside, it staples in gold. Well, the government will just print money or borrow it, and you can get your stapler, right? I mean, so there's no cap on it. So the budget coming from the executive branch is never going to go down. In fact, Congress has mandated that. It's baseline budgeting. The budget for this, it has to go up by a certain percentage. Every year, it can't go. It can't be cut. This was this happened during the Reagan administration. The Congress decided to do this. So again, the Congress is the culprit here. The Congress has a check on the judicial branch. It can decide not to appoint or confirm appointments from the president. It actually has impeachment power. It can do all kinds of things. This is what David French points out in this piece, and so I actually agree with David French. The real issue in America today is not the presidency. The real issue in America today is the Congress. And of course, it's the dirty little secret. When a president stands up and says, I'm going to raise your taxes, they're lying. When a president stands up and says, I'm not going to raise your taxes, they're lying because they can't do any of that. The only entity that can do that is the Congress. Now, we think the president, through a pen and a phone, as Obama said during his administration, can do a lot. But you see, Obama ran into the exact obstacles that everyone has to run into when they go into the executive branch. This is what I've said, be cautious about Ron DeSantis. He's not going to change the world if he becomes president. Trump couldn't do it either. The institution of the general government is too big. The only entity that can change government in America, it's not the federal government, it's the states. This is why Ron DeSantis has been so successful, because he's shown, he's shown as a governor, look at what I can do. I can completely thumb my nose at the general government and they can't do a thing about it. They can threaten, they can blow hot air, they can do all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, 
They really don't have any power. They can take me to court, but of course I've got lawyers and I can fight that back too. And so we'll have to go back and forth on this. But at the end of the day, the real power in America are your governors. This is why I encourage anyone who says, I'm going to change government, run for governor, get involved in the state legislature first, and then become governor of your state. That's how you really do it. Because the governors have a tremendous amount of power. And look, the left realizes this too. They figured it out during the pandemic, the quote-unquote pandemic. When Cuomo was, you know, the darling and you can do whatever he wants. I'm not going to listen to Trump. I'm not going to do this. The left figured out federalism real quick. They've also figured out, of course, with uh, the Dobbs decision. Now they're going to have these sanctuary states and everything. They're figuring out federalism, right? And so is the right. They're figuring it out too. Federalism is how you keep this entire system together. All the founding generation knew it. They knew it from the beginning. The only way you keep the United States together is through federalism. Because if you don't have that and you have one-size-fits-all government, this is they go back to the Baron de Montesquieu on this, right? You, you have to have a despotism for, a, for a, a, a country the size of the United States, third largest country in the world. You have to have a despotism or a tyranny to keep it all together under one single policy because you're going to have too many people to manage. Now again, where is the problem? It comes down to Congress. Congress, we, we think Congress, people should go to Congress and they should pass legislation. In reality, Congress should be there as ambassadors from the states and they have very specific things to do and they're not, they're not uh, very detailed in terms of dealing with the minutia of the states. They can handle defense. They should be talking about that. What do we do with foreign powers? What do we do with foreign policy? And they should be talking about trade. Outside of that, there should be nothing. There really shouldn't be anything for Congress to do. These people should be almost uh, invisible, irrelevant in many ways. They become more powerful when we pay more attention to them when they start doing things that are unconstitutional. And they know it. When they start doing things that they don't have the power to do, people pay attention. All these people are narcissists, right? I mean, we just have a, a video from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Somebody was making some lewd comments about her on the Congress, and she had a meltdown. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, people are, I mean, it shows you the, the mental illness from some of these people on the left. She had a meltdown over this. These people are narcissists. She goes on social media and just wants to tell people about it. So here we have an issue. So I'm going to read this piece by David French. I, I think it's, it's quite interesting. He says, On the last day of the Supreme Court's most recent term, the court released two cases that highlight a challenge to American democracy. A challenge that is the direct result of one of the founders' more consequential miscalculations. They granted Congress more power than any other branch of government, and they mistakenly thought Congress would possess a sense of institutional responsibility and authority. Instead, it is largely a partisan body drained of any sense of independent civic duty, and American democracy suffers as a result. Now, again, we don't have a democratic central government. We have a federal republic. The problem is that Congress is trying to do too much or they're doing too little to control the institution that's there, to maintain federalism and the checks and balances of the entire structure. The two cases seem unrelated at first glance. One is West Virginia v. EPA, in which the Supreme Court struck down the Environmental Protection Agency's Obama-era clean power rule. The court relied on the so-called major questions doctrine, a relatively new term for the legal idea that if Congress intends to delegate significant power to regulatory agencies to fashion new rules and regulations, it has to do so explicitly. 
So this is the thing. Can Congress delegate to an executive agency legislative power? Legislative, executive, and essentially judicial power. Can it do that, right? This is the whole problem with uh, these regulatory agencies from the beginning. And we go back to the Interstate Commerce Commission, the first such regulatory agency in U.S. history. It was passed during the Cleveland administration back in the 19th century. It's one of the things Cleveland did wrong. I mean, Cleveland's a great president, but he did, didn't do everything right. And so you have this regulatory agency which acts as judge, jury, and executioner, right? And it, it sets rules. So can Congress punt its responsibility to an executive agency? I would say no, that the founding generation never considered that, to have a bureaucracy doing stuff that Congress should do. The second case is Biden v. Texas. The court upheld the Biden administration's decision to reverse the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy, which required a small number of non-Mexican nationals who were detained at the border to wait in Mexico during the removal proceedings. He says, what do these cases have in common? They both, ar both arose from serious and problematic congressional inaction. In the EPA case, the executive branch was responding to legitimate concerns about climate change. Legitimate concerns. But the executive branch is not supposed to be a lawmaking body. Well, I mean, David French has the light go off, right? In the Remain in Mexico case, Congress failed to find a fund sufficient immigration detention facilities, rendering it impossible for the president to comply with Congress's mandate that immigrants who are not clearly and beyond a reasonable doubt entitled to entry shall be detained. This left the president with the choice of releasing migrants into the country or requiring them to return to a, the foreign territory contiguous to the United States from which they arrived. Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution states, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. With the growth of the administrative state, Congress has effectively delegated some of its legislative powers to administrative agencies, which promulgate reg regulations that have the force of law. For example, many of the rules that govern American immigration, environmental policy, workplace safety, and the securities industry are regulations promulgated by the executive branch, not statutes passed by Congress. Aha! So this is why people would say all these things are unconstitutional. Congress cannot punt that responsibility. In this case, and I haven't talked about it with the EPA, is a warning shot. Congress, do your job. If you cannot, then do not have any regulations. These regulations cannot come from the executive branch. In fact, all of these regulations, OSHA, EPA, all of that, uh, and education regulate, all of this is unconstitutional. There's not one thing that is. Because Congress didn't write the regulations. You see, Congress has a job to do. And it's not being on social media. They have a job to do. And they don't do it. They go to D.C. and they don't do their job. Now, all these things should not be there to begin with because Congress doesn't have the authority to write environmental regulations. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives them that authority. Or workplace safety regulations, nothing in the Constitution that gives them that authority. All of these things come from the states. And so the state should be doing this stuff. The state should be more of the administrative state, the more bureaucratic side. In fact, our, our, our whole system is upside down. States should actually require more taxes than the federal government because that's where, if you're going to pay taxes for all these things, that's where you have to do it, right? So uh, your state should be, uh, should be soaking you for taxes if anybody's going to soak you for taxes, not the general government. But we flip this around and the general government takes money and then gives it back to the states. 
It's backwards. It's backwards. The entire federal system is upside down. And if you go back and look at the originalist arguments, and this is why I have the originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy, you'll find this is exactly how it was argued. Look, the states are going to be more important. They're going to tax more than the central authority. What does the central government need money for? It's not really going to do anything. It doesn't need any money. And Hamilton even thought, we don't really need a whole lot of money. We just need to have some money to do a few things. Now, the other thing I find hilarious about this French piece is that the left and the Republicans, the, the uh, neoconservative Republicans, are figuring out that their worship of the state has got its problems. A lot of these issues are not government issues anyways. They're, they're be, they should be beyond the scope. But Lincoln in 1838 came up with the idea that we should actually worship the state. Uh, in the United States, we should have a, a, a secular religion. We worship the Declaration and the Constitution. This is his Lyceum Address. I cover it in reading Abraham Lincoln at McClanahan Academy. This is what Lincoln was suggesting. And this is what all these people do. They look for the state to answer all these questions. The piece continues, Chief Justice John Roberts sees a problem there. In his majority opinion in the EPA case, he wrote that any judicial inquiry into administrative authority must answer, quote, whether Congress, in fact, meant to confer the power the agency has asserted. If Congress did not mean to confer such power on the agency, then the agency does not have the legal authority to act, no matter how pressing the matter or how urgent the crisis. In other words, if Congress fails to act, its failure does not empower the executive branch to fill the legal gap. I would question from the beginning, I mean, Roberts is, if Congress even has the authority to do this stuff at all. That's really the issue here, not just an administrative subdivision of the executive branch, but does Congress have the authority for any of this? As Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote in his concurrence in the Biden v. Texas decision, quote, the larger policy story behind the case is the multi-decade inability of the political branches to provide DHS with sufficient facilities to detain non-citizens who seek to enter the United States pending their immigration proceedings. But this court has no authority to address only the legal issues before us. We do not have authority to end the legislative stalemate or to resolve the underlying policy problems. Well, my gosh, Brett Kavanaugh is saying we're not a policy arm. We're not, a legis we're not the legislative branch. We're just saying you can't do this. And, of course, Congress keeps punting its response. This is, I mean, Calhoun, now, now, Calhoun pointed this out. Now, what's the real issue? Of course, political parties, partisanship, parties that, that just decide they're going to block everything because the other party does it. And we see this in the American electorate, right? Well, the Democrats do it, so it's bad. Republicans do it, so it's bad. Republicans do it, so it's good. Democrats do it, so it's good. We see it all the time. But what we really need is real decentralization where the, where the states get involved in this stuff. And then all these fools in Washington, D.C. have no clothes, right? They're, they're, they're just vapid non-entities. We wouldn't pay attention to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders, any of these people. They would be irrelevant. Joe Biden would be irrelevant, practically. So French says, what does all any of this have to do with the founders? How do these cases reflect a challenge to American democracy? The problem is simply this. Congress was intended to be the most potent branch of government. It is now the most dysfunctional. And it's dysfunctional in part because the founders did not properly predict the power of partisanship over institutional responsibility. That is a true statement. Congress was intended to be the most powerful branch of government. I, I remember when I was doing my publicity for the Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution back in 2012, a decade ago now. 
I brought this up over and over again. Oh, well, I mean, everyone wants to focus on the presidency because we all kind of gravitate toward this monarchy, but the Congress was designed to do it. Even worse, Congress's dysfunction radiates to other branches of government, but the presidency and the judiciary assume more power than they should, escalating the stakes of presidential elections and the intensity of judicial confirmations. Exactly right. I mean, Congress is punting every day and they're not doing their job, and they're not controlling the other branches of government. And of course, the states have just sat back and let the general... But the states don't have to do that anymore. We've seen it now. If you are listening to this, and you're interested in state government, get involved. The states have all the power. And the general government knows it, which is why when the states stand up, the general government backs down. 99.9% of the time, because they can't do a darn thing about it. Describing the branches of government as co-equal, as many people do, is simply wrong. Read the Constitution and quickly see that Congress has more theoretical power than any other branch. Let me correct that for a second. The Senate has more power than any other institution in Washington, D.C. By design. Why? Because that was the state check on the entire system. It can fire the president. It can fire any member of the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court. It can define the jurisdiction of federal courts and the numbers of judges and justices. Its powers are enumerated in the first article of the Constitution for a reason. It's not equal, it's preeminent. And this is true. Article 1 is the longest section of the Constitution. All the other articles are much shorter. Article 2 and 3, which deal with the executive and judiciary respectively, are much shorter. And not a whole lot's there. Right? So, and we look at some of the other articles, I mean, they're, they're pretty short. And they deal with specific things, like Article 5 is how you amend the Constitution, for example. Only Congress can declare war. Only Congress can authorize public spending. For all the talk of the founders' suspicion of democracy, they gave these significant powers to the most democratic branch of government. Well, he's he's looking beyond the Senate. The the Senate was was not democratic. Only the House was. And the House was always checked by the Senate. And the Senate, this is the Senate is the most important thing. And the 17th Amendment has done a lot to distort what the what the Constitution, the Federal Republic is. But the Senate is the key. You control the Senate, you control the entire government. The left knows this. This is why they want to abolish the Senate, because the the right controls more states. And so when you control more states, you control the Senate. It's always been this way. What do you think the entire sectional conflict was over? The Senate. The entire time it's over the Senate. In reality, however, this independent congressional power depends a great deal on its willingness to uphold its institutional responsibility, to see itself as a separate branch of government that is jealous of its own power and prerogatives. The constitutional theory isn't that, say, Democrats will check Republicans, but that Congress will check the presidency. Again, that's 100% correct. The founding generation couldn't see parties. Now, Washington saw it coming in 1796 with, of course, the help of Madison and Hamilton, but Washington saw it coming. That's part of the farewell address. Do not become factions, because those factions will gum up the works and it will get impossible to do things. But the real issue, as Jefferson pointed out in 1798, was not that. 
It was the power of the center over the power of the states. If the states stood up, the center would not matter. All this partisanship in Congress would not matter because the states would deal with all this stuff. If we just had a commitment in the American polity to federalism, none of this would matter. You want to change things, you got to have a commitment to federalism on both the left and the right. Not just on the right, but on the left too. These idiots that are protesting in California after the Dobbs decision should not even be out there protesting. Nothing changed in their life. They can still go do whatever they want. Now, people in red states, quote-unquote red states, some of their lives changed. But they're the vast and the minority in those populations. We believe in democracy. This is what we get. we got to stop thinking of the nation. This is why Abraham Lincoln did so much to screw up America. Because we nationalized everything in 1865. Should have never happened. Substitute an overriding partisan purpose for institutional responsibility and the system starts to falter. We see this most plainly in the impeachment context. Congress has quite clearly intended to view impeachment primarily through a partisan lens. When Mitt Romney voted to convict Donald Trump during Trump's first impeachment trial in 2019, he was the first senator in American history to cross partisan lines to vote to convict a president. The first senator to cross partisan lines to vote to convict a president. Congress is now less an independent branch of government and much more a collection of partisan foot soldiers supporting or opposing the sitting president's agenda. Combine this partisan purpose with a closely divided country and you have a formula for deadlock and worse. Kind of sounds like a ringing endorsement of, of, of partisanship, right? Nothing goes on. That'd be good. The state should handle all this stuff anyways. Politics abhors a power vacuum and Congress's absence has been filled by the presidency. That's also a true statement. The presidency just decided it was going to act. As Congress shrinks, the presidency grows. On a bipartisan basis, presidents now choose to act whenever Congress fails. So now it's the presidents who, in effect, declare war. Time and again, they initiate military hostilities without congressional approval. Their administrative agencies write laws of great consequence. They draft executive orders or even designed to redirect funds appropriated by Congress to new presidential priorities. And the quirks of the Electoral College mean we now face a system where most Americans who live in safe red or blue states don't cast truly meaningful votes for the one person who holds all this power. This reality breeds instability, and that instability is amplified each time a president is elected in spite of losing the popular vote. So this is, oh my gosh, we can't have that, but this is exactly where the system was designed. We don't vote for the president. You vote for electors, and those electors then vote for the president. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? We don't have a direct democracy for the presidency. But we shouldn't have executive government. That's the other issue. If we didn't have executive government, all this wouldn't happen if Congress actually did its job. More importantly, if the states did their job and checked the entire system, which they can do. And this brings us back to the Supreme Court. An emerging court majority is now highly skeptical of presidential power. Through a series of technical rulings grounded in both the Administrative Procedure Act and the Constitution itself, the court is imposing intense scrutiny on executive action, such as the Trump administration's attempt to repeal DACA and add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, the Biden administration's OSHA vaccine mandate, and the Obama-era clean power rule. On a pragmatic basis, a dangerous game is afoot. The Supreme Court is telling Congress, if you want something done, you'll have to do it yourself. But what if Congress simply doesn't do anything? What if it continues to place partisan imperatives over its institutional responsibilities? 
The Supreme Court can deny the president additional power, but it cannot force Congress to do its work. Well, you know what happens there? Then the states have to get involved. This is not a dangerous game. This is, this is what needs to happen. The states need to start doing this stuff. This is a ringing endorsement of think locally, act locally. That's, that's what the, the court is undoing nationalism. And that's exactly what needed to happen. Indeed, if Congress continues to abrogate its fundamental constitutional obligations, it will cause even more degradation in the American body politic. So what? The states can handle this stuff. Troubling gaps in law and policy will be left entirely unaddressed. No, they won't. They'll be handled by the states. And a less and less powerful president will be unable to alter the national course. Hallelujah! There's no national course except in foreign policy and trade. That's it! All this other stuff should be handled at the state level. See, French is operating from a nationalist position, from a Lincolnian position. We need to disabuse ourselves of that. That's the whole point. You can't have nationalism and have real effective government in America unless you have a dictator or a monarchy. And we don't have a hereditary situation in the United States. We're going to get Joe Biden's. Despite all this, however, the court is constitutionally correct. Of course it is. It is not the role of the judicial branch to enlarge the power of the presidency merely because Congress has lapsed into partisan impotence. Ratifying the continued expansion of the executive, uh, sorry, administrative state would only enable Congress's worse instincts and further damage American democracy. What would further damage is American federalism. That's, the, that's what's at stake here. French doesn't get it. This was produced in the Atlantic, by the way. But that's what French can't see. So... I like this piece because he gets it almost all the way right, but because he's a nationalist, he can't see the real issue. He can't figure it out, and he's a neocon, so he's, he's lost. He's down the Lincoln, Lincolnian nationalist rabbit hole, and he can never get out of that. Now, I know you can. That's why you listen to this podcast. So this is why I do this stuff and why I talk about these things. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.